Hey friends, this is Reiko Zek. I'm the pastor at St. Paul's. You're listening to Jesus in the Center One Year Bible Podcast. What a day. We've got a doozy of a day today. It's day number 25. If you're reading along, you have done it, or you will do it. You're, you're making it to the end of Genesis. 50 chapters. We're in Genesis chapter 50, and we turn the corner, and we start in the book of Exodus. Woo! I'm so glad that you all are reading along with me. It's pretty awesome. We're also going to look at Matthew chapter 16 and 17. There's a lot here. Let's pray. Oh Lord, open your word to us that we might see Jesus. We might know the redemption you have planned for us, that you have not forgotten us, but your eye is upon us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing our Savior, Jesus Christ, to us. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 50, we see that Jacob had just died, or Israel has just died. Remember the promise that God gave to Jacob? He says, I will bring you down to Egypt, and I will bring you back up again. And your son Joseph, his hand will close your eyes. And that's exactly what happens here. And so Jacob dies, and Joseph closes his eyes, and he grieves for him, and he has him embalmed. Right? He is an Egyptian, so mummified, I guess we could say takes 40 days, and then there's another 30 days of grieving. This is a big deal. Jacob is honored in Egypt. His days of mourning are 70 days altogether. To put that into context, Pharaoh would be grieved for 72 days. So Jacob is very much honored. And we see the most ornate funeral in the Bible there. In, and it kind of points out to us you know, two things. One is how the problem of sin that we see in the very beginning, this eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it has an effect to cause death. And yet, on the other hand, there's this dignity of the body. There's this hope of eternal life. So we see that as a glimpse here in the funeral of Jacob. Then we have, after Jacob dies, the brothers of Joseph are like, okay, is it only dad being around that is keeping Joseph's vengeance in check? Is he now that dad's dead? We're afraid. And so they send a message to Joseph by a hand of a messenger. They say, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of the God of your father. So they're asking for this forgiveness that they don't feel like they have. And they come and fall down before Joseph They say, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Remember other places in Scripture, it says, Vengeance is the Lord's, I will repay, says the Lord. Joseph knows this, that he is not the one to to dish out vengeance. And so he assures them of their forgiveness. He assures them of the forgiveness that he's already given to them. Verse 20, it says, as for you, and by the way, this is a central verse throughout all of Scripture. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We can take this as a, as a platitude, and sometimes it's annoying when you know, some tragedy happens and people say, well, it'll all work out for good. God will turn it into good. And, and those words are, are hard. Not everything does turn out for good. There is much evil in this world. However, God does weave into his plan. He uses evil and tragedy in ways that we can't see. So we can check out Romans 8 for that, especially verses 28 and following, that God causes all things to work for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. 
we can't always see it, but God does work for good in the midst of evil. He can do, he's the greatest problem solver. All right, and then we have the death of Joseph, and we're about to transition into the story of Exodus. We have Joseph living out his life in faith before God, and it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And at the end of his life, he says, God will surely visit you. In the NIV, it says, God will surely come to your aid. Visit has the idea of God coming down where we are and coming to spend time with us. We see this especially in the New Testament. This word visit carries the weight of God coming to save us. Anyway, as Joseph dies, he he promises that God will surely visit them. And he says, and you shall carry up my bones from here. He's demanding of them, this is not my homeland. This land of Egypt, it's where I lived most of my life, 97 years, 93 years of my life. I lived here in Egypt, and it's not my final resting place. Take me back to the land of Canaan. And of course, we know that that land, land of promise, that itself is a picture of the eternal life we have, right? Check out 1 Corinthians 15. It's beautiful. When this immortal puts on immortality, then then uh, that's our final home. So check that out, 1 Corinthians 15. Thus ends the book of Genesis. We've been talking about how there are pictures of Jesus as we read through this Old Testament. It's a story about him. And here, I want you to think about how Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Israel, is a type of Christ. There are so many things he does and experiences that prefigure what Jesus will do. Let me just list them off. And if you, again, you don't like this, just fast forward. But here's one. He's a shepherd of his father's sheep. Both he, Joseph, and Jesus are loved dearly by their father. They're both hated by their brothers. They're both sent by their father to their brothers. They both have others who plot them harm. They both have robes that are taken from them. They're both taken to Egypt and sold for the price of a slave. They're both tempted and falsely accused. They're both found, sorry, they're both bound in chains. They're both placed with two other prisoners, one who was saved and the other lost. They both are exalted after their suffering. And both are about 30 years old at the beginning of their public recognition. We could say their public ministry. They both weep. They both forgive those who wrong them. They both save their nation. And for both of them, what men, what people did to hurt them, God turned into amazing good. Now, if that is coincidence, well, all right, it's pretty cool. I think it's more than coincidence. All right, well, we turn over to Exodus, and I could do a whole hour's worth of stuff about Exodus. As you can tell from just reading this first chapter or two, that there's a great change. It's been years. In fact, I think it's about 200 and it's about 280 years since Joseph dies before Moses is born. So there's a long time that has passed and there is a new king over Egypt and there's this great story. Exodus means being set free, this trip of freedom. Let me read if you don't mind, a paragraph from the Lutheran Study Bible. It says this uh, as a blessing about reading this book. It says, Exodus describes the central redemptive event of the Old Testament. Through the blood of the Passover lambs, the Lord delivered his people from slavery. This redemption becomes the most mentioned event of Israelite history. 
Through the blood of the covenant, the Lord consecrated Israel as a kingdom of priests. He directed the building of the tabernacle as a place of worship and forgiveness. Moses and the elders of Israel also enjoyed the splendor of seeing God and learning the meaning of his name, Yahweh. That's in chapter 3. The seeing God is chapter 24. They saw that God is not only holy, but also merciful and patient. He remembers his people and his promises to their forefathers for a thousand generations. That's Exodus 34. So as you read Exodus, look for these important themes. See that the Lord still leads his people through the prophet like Moses and redeems you by the blood of the Lamb of God. That's Jesus. And that is quoted in John chapter 1, verse 29 and 36. Well, there's some blessings for us to read to see the redemption of God taking place. Jesus will later call his ministry as he's on the Mount of uh, I guess the Mount of Transfiguration where he reveals his glory to Moses and Elijah, which we'll read about just a little bit today. In Luke, Luke tells us that he's talking with them about his, it's translated departure, but it's the Greek word exodus. He's talking about the exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And so we we can read backwards and know that this great exodus that will happen to God's people out of Egypt, it, it prefigures what Jesus is going to accomplish. So it is a beautiful, real event of God's salvation in history. And it's there, it's real, but it also prefigures what God is going to do uh, with the coming of Jesus. All right, so we turn over to Exodus and we see that uh, they... The, the people of God there, Israel, we'll just call them that they are now called a people. So the nation Israel or the people of Israel, they are fruitful and they are increasing greatly. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And this is what uh, Israel is doing. God is blessing them. Well, here in the story, I just want to I want to think with you. There's, there's a, a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this is probably a... Uh, what's called a Hyksos king. These are outsiders who ruled over Egypt for a couple hundred years from, if you care about history, 1730 BC to 1570 BC. And then I think between, someone said that between verses 12 and 13, there is another big epic. So let me read it. Verse 12 says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Possibly there's another epic change the, the line of pharaohs begins to rule again. Perhaps at this time there's a pharaoh named Amos the first. I don't know. This is the, I'm just learning about this and trying to piece it together. And then verse 13 says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Remember how the brothers of Joseph bowed down and said, we are, We'll be your slaves. Keep us alive. Well, that slavery, it, it took shape. Uh, more than just the serfdom that the rest of Egypt endured. Here they are becoming slaves and they're building these cities. The king of Egypt basically says, if it's a son who was born to the Hebrews, you shall kill him. Says this to the, to the Hebrew midwives. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. In other words, we can't incorporate their daughters. We'll take them. But the sons, kill them. Because if they have sons, they will carry on their Hebrewness. Let's get rid of them. So they do. Pharaoh makes this law. What do you think about the Hebrew midwives? Did they lie? They said this, uh, they feared God, which is pretty cool. And they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. 
So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Why are you letting the little boys live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives. God bless them. Are they telling the truth? Maybe they're just not getting on purpose, getting to the Hebrews because they don't need them. I don't know. They're defying the orders of Pharaoh. And they're not the only ones. Chapter 2 tells us that one is coming who is born, whose parents have faith. And you can wonder why they did what they did, but there's this horrible edict that all of the little boys who are Hebrews shall be thrown into the Nile and drowned. What a horrible, unjust law. And so the Jews, the Hebrews, they don't obey it, right? Acts 5.29 says it's better to obey God than men. There are unjust laws that we ought not obey. And we see one of these here. Hebrews also tells us that the parents of Moses had faith. Hebrews 11.23 tells us that. Well, anyway, it's around the year 1526, and we see Moses born, and we'll read more about him tomorrow. Anyway, we'll, we'll stop there in Exodus. Uh, we just get the glimpse of where the people are there being oppressed, and they no longer have respect for Joseph and his tribe. We flip over to Matthew chapter 16. We jump in, and Jesus asks, he's in the area of, he goes up to north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is a city built by Herod the Great, and it's later improved by his son Philip, who was uh, the tetrarch of this area. And so he calls it Caesarea Philippi, the Caesarea who is built by Philip. And this was a place to honor Caesar Augustus and perhaps even give thanks to God for him or even what they call emperor worship, burn a pinch of incense to the emperor. And this would this would be widespread over the Roman Empire in the generation to come. Anyway, Jesus is there of all places. And so he is he's challenging his disciples in this very Gentile area, this area where, with pagan worship. He says, who do people say that I am? Turns out that Simon Peter knows you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember in chapter 14, all the disciples said, you are the son of God, and they worshiped him. And more and more is being revealed. Peter, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So we see here this beautiful gift from the Father in heaven to reveal who Jesus is. And I think that is important for us to know, oh God, unless you show us who you are, we in our own flesh, our own flesh and blood can't figure it out. Simon Peter is blessed because it's been revealed that Jesus is the Christ. And then he says this, I tell you, and it's singular, I tell you, you are Peter, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this is the verse that Roman Catholic theologians will use to say, look, the church is built on the vicar or the bishop of Rome, the vicar of Christ, the bishop of Rome, on the Pope. It says it right here, Peter is the first Pope. Well, I challenge that. I challenge that because it's not, Jesus is not building it on Peter in context. He could have said, you are Peter and on you I will build my church. But he says, you are Petros and on this Petra I will build my church. 
the best way, and we could go into the details, but the way the grammar works is that Jesus is referring back to what Peter has said on this Petra. This is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus goes on and says this, I will build, and it's the first time in the gospel, my church, my ecclesia. It basically just means my assembly, my own people. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You've probably heard this before. Gates don't attack. Gates are attacked. So here, Jesus is saying that this assembly, this church that he builds, it will be a a church on mission, a church out and about to attack uh, Hades or hell itself. And he says, I will do it. He doesn't say, you will do it, but I will do it as you are based on my this confession that I am the Christ. And then he says this, I give you, and this is singular, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And here Jesus is talking to Peter. He's the one who, right now as a representative of all the apostles. We know that Jesus extends this to all the apostles. Check out uh, Matthew 18, 18, a similar context about who is in the assembly and the grievances uh, among one another. And he says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you all, plural, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus takes this authority that he gives to Peter and extends it to all the apostles. And just for good measure, this being loosed and being bound, this I believe is also given to all pastors who are ordained And we can see that in John chapter 20, that Jesus comes and says some similar things. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. You check that out. That's Jesus on the night of Easter in the upper room, John chapter 20. Starting in verse 21, we have a whole new thing. It's a journey to the cross. From this verse on, Jesus is going to set his eyes on his mission, not just the mission to teach and preach and heal but his mission to become the the ransom of God, uh, the atonement that will cover our sins. And so we see that in verse 21. He tells the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And Peter is like, no, God be merciful to you, Lord, or far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Who's saying this again? Peter. Peter, the one who was blessed because the Father in heaven revealed it to him. Remember, In chapter 11, Jesus said, Father in heaven, you reveal this truth to babes and infants. So in some ways, Peter is a babe, one who knows that he needs the Father to speak to him if he's going to know truth. Yet on the other hand, it says that his mind is not fixed on the things of God, but on the things of man. He, I think like us, is is mixed up. Simultaneously a saint and a sinner. We are redeemed, and this battle we face is one where we're going to fight against our mind or flesh. That's Galatians 5. Check that out sometime. Jesus turns to Peter and says the same words he said when he called him, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That same word follow me is here translated, get behind me, Satan. He adds the word Satan or accuser and he rebukes Peter. This is not the only time. In fact, Peter is rebuked probably more than anyone else in the scriptures. And yet he also has great faith. Maybe what we read in Proverbs is true, that the one that the Lord loves, he rebukes. So I guess I want to be open to being rebuked, if it means that I also will learn much. 
All right, well, there's a lot there. There's the whole transfiguration, which we're not going to mention today. Maybe we'll pick back up tomorrow and talk about that since we've already talked so much today. All right, go in peace, serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.